Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Steve Ujifusa about his new book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I, which chronicles the efforts to save Russian Jewry from czarist Russian pogroms. Steve is a historian who chronicles the confluence of American business, social, and maritime history. He is the recipient of the Washington Irving Medal for Literacy Excellence from the St. Nicholas Society of the City of New York, a McDowell Artist Residency recipient, and the Athenaeum of Philadelphia's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Steve Ujifusa, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into this wonderful book of yours, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, uh, I uh, grew up in Chappaqua, New York, just outside of New York City, but I've lived in Philadelphia uh, for the past uh, 20 years or so. Uh, my wife is a emergency room physician of two sons. And my specialty is, uh, I'm a historian who focuses, has a particular interest in maritime history. I've written a book called A Man in a Ship in 2012 about the SS United States. And then in 2018, I wrote a book called Barons of the Sea, which is about the 19th century American clipper ships and the opium trade in the San Francisco gold rush. So The Last Ships from Hamburg is my third book. How'd you pick uh, maritime as an interest? Well, I've always been interested in ships since the time I was around six years old. And I will say that this book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, was kind of a coming home for me because what got me interested in history was my grandmother uh, telling me the story of the Titanic. And that got me interested both in ships and in history. And I majored in history at Harvard and always had this dream of becoming a historian. And my grandmother was the youngest of eight children of Jewish immigrants who arrived in America in 1890. Uh, she grew up in Brooklyn. And she told me the story of Isidore and Ida Strauss, who were uh, a couple in first class on the Titanic. He was co-owner of Macy's department store. And he and his wife perished in the disaster. She refused to leave him. And... That was a story uh, I realized as I grew older that really resonated in the Jewish community. My grandmother was born in 1916, four years after the ship sank, but that must have been a story that was repeated again and again throughout the Jewish community. And it appears in The Last Ships from Hamburg. They appear as characters. And for me, this was revisiting not just my roots as an historian, but also family roots, because my family... Uh, made that dangerous journey in the 1890s from the Russian Empire, where they were experiencing persecution, military conscription, great uncertainty, to America, which was a another gamble in itself. But for most of the million-plus Jews who fled the Russian Empire between 1881 and 1914, there was no option of going back. This was their... This America was the better alternative to something that was pretty terrible. Mm. You write in introducing the book that between 1881 and 1914, 
Over 10 million people crossed the Atlantic Ocean from Europe to America. It was the largest mass migration of people from one continent to another in human history. And three people, Albert Ballin, Jacob Schiff, and J.P. Morgan, all of whom were driven by different motives, but nonetheless converged on the ambition of helping make the second exodus, Jews leaving Russia, a reality for millions of people. That's the broad thesis, yeah? Yes. And let's start in examining this by giving, having you give us a little bit of a history lesson of what was going on in Russia during this time. And maybe we can start with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in March of 1881. Was it March of 1881? Yes. So what was going on in Russia during this time was sort of representative in a more extreme form of what was going on throughout a lot of Southern and Eastern Europe, where you had massive industrialization, huge population growth, a lot of poverty. And Tsar Alexander II, who uh, ruled Russia as an absolute monarch, he was seen by many as a quote-unquote good czar. He was someone who was trying to push Russia towards a more liberal constitutional monarchy, uh, basically breaking away from the old-fashioned divine right of kings. He had freed Russia's serfs in 1861, uh, two years before America uh, passed the, the North uh, passed the Emancipation Proclamation. So in one rare instance, Russia was ahead of the curve from us. But Tsar Alexander II was uh, still very much hated by uh, a lot of the urban middle class who felt that he was not doing enough. So in 1881, in March in St. Petersburg, an anarchist group named People's Will organized an assassination attempt. They threw a, two bombs at his carriage. Uh, the second one killed the czar, and his son, Alexander III, took over as the new monarch. Tsar Alexander III looked at the situation, and he was not a particularly bright guy, but he looked around and said, see, this is what happens when Russia tries to move towards liberalism, towards constitutional monarchy. It has no place in Mother Russia. It has no place in the Russian psyche. We need to have a massive pullback of, of any talk of a constitution, and we need to move back towards Russian, the Russian principles of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. So after his father's death and when he became czar, he launched a vicious campaign of what was known as Russification, which was basically the subjugation and kind of erasure of most of Russia's ethnic minorities. This included Uzbeks who were Muslim in uh, the central part of the empire. You had Georgians, you had Armenians. Uh, but he had a special ire for the empire's 4 million Jews who he blamed for uh, not, first of all, he said he called them personally, he called them Christ killers. He said, these people do not recognize the Russian spirit. They do, are not loyal to uh, the czar and they're bringers of revolution. And he and his advisor, Konstantin Pabdanatsev, who was also uh basically the legal enforcer of the Russian Orthodox Church came up with a plan where they basically said the ideal fate for Russia's 4 million Jews in the wake of this assassination would be if one-third immigrate, one-third die, and one-third just disappear. And this was state-sanctioned anti-Semitism, which was a huge 
deviation from what other European countries were doing. England had long since uh, given Jews full rights. You had the ascension of the Rothschilds in, in, in uh, Great Britain as members of the ruling class. You had in the, uni the unified German Empire in 1871, Jews were given full citizens' rights and even given no no nobility, same with Austria-Hungary. So Russia was sort of seen as an aberration, but state sanctions anti-Semitism was the policy. So in this period, you write that Jews of the Russian Empire had withstood centuries of persecution and abuse and somehow managed to survive. But the pogroms of this period, the 1880s, forward were so ferocious and terrifying that a growing number of Jews thought the unthinkable, leave everything behind and travel halfway around the world to America. It was just not safe to stay in Russia anymore. Yes, that was the difficult decision for hundreds of thousands of Jews, and they were confined to this, almost all of them were confined to this uh, western and southern part of the empire known as the Pale of Settlement that encompasses much of present-day Ukraine, uh, Belarus, and uh, most Jews in Russia, some had made some money and they were living in places like Warsaw and Odessa, but most were barely making a living as tradesmen, like the proverbial Tevye the Milkman, living in these little shtetls, these little villages that were mostly Jewish. And they had to make the difficult decision. You had Cossacks coming through, raping, pillaging, and burning villages. You had uh, Russian peasants were basically encouraged, especially at Easter, to uh, kill Jews and and loot and and steal. And you also had military conscription. The czar, part of the czar's policy to Russify the Jews was to conscript boys as young as ten or twelve years old, draft them in the army for twenty five years, and if they even came back alive, they wouldn't even be Jewish anymore. So that the conscription really scared people. This idea that you will totally lose your identity. So you had this problem of people saying, okay, how do we get out? Russia has no major deep water ports aside from Odessa, and none of them had direct service to the United States. So you had to sell everything you owned, pretty much everything, and say goodbye to almost everyone you know and say maybe one day we'll make enough money to bring you over, get in a horse and cart, and try to find your way to the closest railroad station. And then the challenge was, how do we get to the great seaports of Northern Europe and Great Britain, which offered steamship service to the United States. Right, so you have a couple of parts here before we get to the, the, the seaports. And the first one is how can Russian Jews safely and inexpensively cross over the land to, to, to get there? And you tell a interesting story of a family, which I think is sort of illustrative of this, and that's the Weinstein-Bacall um, journey. And so can you give us that as a, as a sort of an example of, of what it is that these million Jews who ultimately had to leave or chose to leave um, faced in the overland part? And then we'll get to the seaports in a minute. Sure. So the Weinstein-Bacalls were a family in Romania and the city of Yash. And Romania as Romania's government was closely linked with the Russian Empire, they also had an anti-Semitic policy. Um, not as vicious as Russia, but it was still pretty bad. And you had the infamous uh, Kishinev pogrom take place just over the uh, border with Russia. 
tell the listening audience what the Kishinev pogrom was, and then let's and keep going. Okay. Sure. So the Kishinev pogrom took place in 1903, and it was took place at Easter, as many pogroms did. But uh, this was a particularly vicious pogrom. Uh, it was in the province of Bessarabia, which was just over the Romanian border, and the city that it took place in was, I think, about half Jewish. And it was just one of these things that happened where when people came out of Easter services, uh, you had people who are drunk, people who are in a bad mood, and they said, let's go beat up and kill some Jews. This was something that was blessed by the clergy. They said, go ahead and do it. The police stood by. Uh, Hundreds of Jews were injured. Uh, hundreds of homes were destroyed. Um, I believe the, the final death toll was, I think, around 60. It was revised downward, but it was particularly brutal. Children were killed. It was a massacre. And this made international headlines in both Europe and the United States. It attracted the outrage of Jewish leaders in America, such as Jacob Schiff, who was the head partner of the investment bank Kuhn Loban Company, who was probably the biggest Jewish philanthropist. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt condemned it as president. The Russian government denied that there was any official state policies. Oh, Jews are perfectly fine here. This was just an aberration. It actually was kind of a lie, what happened, grossly exaggerated. But uh, this really attracted uh, international notice, this particular program. And so you, so I interrupted, and you were saying so this program, which is a bit of a catalyst now. If you didn't think it was bad uh, as it was, this program was a, a trigger point for others to say, well, maybe we ought to think about getting out of here. And the Weinstein Bacalls, who I was asking about, was one such family. Yes, yes, they, they were, and Romania had had policies that mirrored uh, what was going on in Russia. There was the rise of a far-right party in Romania at the time that was openly spouting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. You also had around this time of 1902 the publication of a of a infamous forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which basically it was produced by basically the Russian government that claimed to be this document from inside of a Jewish meeting of worldwide leaders. And it said, we intend to take over the world, the financial system, and all that. So it was it was a you had stuff like this coming out, terrible uh, cartoons and forgeries such as the protocols. And so the Weinstein Bacalls made the decision to leave. They had some money, they were middle class, but they lost a lot of money in economic upheaval and they had to sell everything, including family silver. And the, the journey to the by rail and the steamship ticket to America was expensive. I mean, this was probably for a family this was the equivalent of maybe eight to ten then eight to ten thousand dollars, and what they had to do was they would buy their tickets, a combination steamship and railroad ticket from a Hamburg America Line agent located in Yash. There was a network of steamship agencies throughout Eastern Europe, Austria, Hungary, and the Russian Empire. They would buy basically a package, and after selling everything, they would get on the train. They would get on a train to the border with Germany. And this also happened with Russia, too. There'd be a border control station that was run jointly by the Hamburg America Line and by the North German Lloyd. Uh, The German government basically outsourced border control to these two steamship companies. And you would have inspections, health inspections, to make sure these immigrants didn't have any 
diseases that would get them turned away at Ellis Island. Uh, a lot of there's a saying among Jewish immigrants: "May God bless you and beware of 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 Albert Ballin's bats." Albert Ballin was the head of the Hamburg America Line. So if they passed inspection, uh, and they would often be a backlog at these border control stations, who so would have these migrant camps uh, on the border, either in Poland or in Romania or Austria-Hungary. And if they pass, then they would take they would get on a sealed train through Germany, and all these trains would converge at a checkpoint known as Rüleben outside of Berlin, where people would be ordered to get off. They would be inspected again. Then they get back on if they passed, and then they would end up either at Hamburg or Bremen, which were the two big steamship ports. And the Weinstein Bacalls, which included Max and Sophie and several children, uh, imagine being a parent after being on a train for a thousand miles of uh, days on end, then you'd be put into an immigrant village in, at the Hamburg America Line terminal called the Auswandererhallen. These barracks could house up to 5,000 immigrants at a time as they were waiting for their ship to sail. And they would stay there for up to two weeks. If you paid a bit more money, you can get a hotel room, but most of them stayed in barracks. There would be kosher kitchens and a, and a synagogue for Jewish passengers. Uh, it was kept far away from the Hamburg city center. And then they would be put on a train to Cuxhaven, which was the port at the mouth of the Elbe River. And then they would board the ships. So the the Weinstein Bacalls boarded a steamer called the SS Deutschland, which was the flagship of the Hamburg America Line fleet at the time, the fastest ship on the Atlantic. And they would be put into basically a big dormitory at the bottom of the ship, cordoned off from first and second class passengers. And often Jewish passengers were segregated from other passengers because there's actual fear of a pogrom breaking out on board. And these spaces would have bunks stacked two or three high. There'd be no privacy. Uh, you were in the very bottom of the ship. Many of these people had never seen electric lights before or flush toilets. And then they'd be in the bottom of the ship for seven days or so until they reached New York. And then they'd have to pass through the infamous Ellis Island. And did anything good ever come of the Weinstein Bacalls? Any, uh, any children or grandchildren become anybody that we know of? Yes. Yeah, so the Weinstein Bacalls are an example of an immigrant family that produced uh, people that contributed a lot to this uh, country. So Max and Sophie had a daughter, a baby daughter named Natalie, who they who came on with them on the Deutschland. They settled in the Bronx. Uh, he owned, Max opened a candy store after working as a pushcart peddler for a long time on the Lower East Side, something that scarred many immigrants, Jewish immigrants, that push, operating a pushcart, barely getting by. But they, their, their daughter Natalie got married to a, a guy named Bill Persky, and they had a daughter named Betty Joan Persky. They, they, Bill and Natalie got divorced, but their daughter, Betty Joan, grew up with her maternal grandmother, uh, Sophie, and had a, Sophie had a great influence on Betty Joan, and Betty Joan was eventually accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts at Carnegie Hall, and she would eventually change her name to Lauren Bacall, one of the great Hollywood actresses of the golden era. Just as an aside, my great uncle, Erwin Brooks, who himself was the son of Russian immigrants, he and Lauren Bacall had a, uh, had a, a fling at summer camp in the 30s. So we're going to take our first break, and then we'll be right back. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. So the, the Weinstein Bacalls, they become the Weinsteins and Lauren Bacall becomes Lauren Bacall and the rest is history. But I wanted to go back a little bit, which is you mentioned something about crossing the border from Russia to Germany. So we know about Alexander III. What was Kaiser Wilhelm, the head of uh, the, the, the Prussian Empire? What was his relationship with the Jews? How How porous was that border? How... Um, sort of, what was his relationship with with anti-Semitism in in under his reign? Well, Kaiser Wilhelm II was a <laughs> a complicated relationship with the Jews, to say the least. He uh, became emperor in 1888 after his father died after a reign of, I believe, three months. His father already had cancer, and he was Queen Victoria's eldest grandchild. And Kaiser Wilhelm II. Uh, was by no means stupid, but he was even as a young man, Chancellor Bismarck said, this man is a megalomaniac and seems mentally unstable. He, What he really wanted was for Germany to be on par with Great Britain. He, in public, uh, was very accepting of Jews in his empire. They did very well after they achieved full citizenship rights in the 1870s. By the 1890s, early 1900s, Germany had a very large and prosperous Jewish middle and upper class who made their fortunes in banking and retail and industry. Among them was Albert Ballin, who was head of the Hamburg America line. And Kaiser Wilhelm II had kind of a council of Jewish advisors who would meet with him occasionally to discuss Jewish affairs in the German Empire. But Kaiser Wilhelm II was very much brought up in the Prussian elite. Uh, tradition, which was very anti-Semitic, very uh, its wealth was largely based in large land holdings, which made them very suspicious of people that made their money in cities and non-agrarian things. And in private, Kaiser Wilhelm II would slip into anti-Semitic tropes with his Prussians, with Prussian aristocrats who had outsized uh, influence in the new German Empire. And the border between Russia and Germany was uh, relatively porous. Uh, You did have a lot of people trying to get through, and a lot of the people in the German government, especially the Prussian aristocracy, were very concerned about, well, what about all these Jews? Are they going to come here and uh, be migrants and settle here? Uh, We don't want that. So Kaiserville II made a deal with uh, two German shipping lines, uh, the Hamburg-America line, which was run by Albert Ballin, who was a Jew, 
and the North German Lloyd, which was run by Heinrich Wiegand, who was not Jewish, but both made their money from the immigrant trade. They said, "You, we will give you control of all border control stations. Uh, in return for that, all people passing through Germany from Russia must have steamship tickets, and they must that must be their way out. And Kaiserwald II saw Germany's steamship lines as basically projections of German greatness throughout the world, especially to America and England. And he said, okay, if immigration is going to make these German steamship lines wealthy and allow them to build bigger and grander and faster steamships, I'm fine with that, but I don't want them settling here. And a lot of the German Jews were ambivalent about these Russian Jews too settling there. They were very philanthropic about giving money to help subsidize steamship tickets for migrants who didn't have them and to provide uh, social services while they were waiting but they weren't especially hot on more Jews settling in Germany. So there's a very complicated relationship. Uh, and Wilhelm, uh, he had no problem giving out the honorific Vons to wealthy German Jews who were supportive of his reign. But I think that that really irritated people, especially his wife, Kaiserin Augusta Victoria, who was pretty anti-Semitic. Um, they saw that as a threat. So this is the origins of not in my backyard, huh? Pretty much. Yeah. So they leave Russia uh, because the pogroms are as ferocious as, as you've described them to be. They get to the border. They have a possible passage through Germany as long as they don't uh, stick around. And the key to all of this is the international maritime industry. So tell us about it, because you don't think about that in modern times, but in those times, the uh, steamships were everything, and and they were making people like Ballin, who we'll talk about in more detail, uh, wealthy people. So tell us about that industry, and then I'd like to switch and go to the three major protagonists of, of the book, Ballin Schiff and, and J.P. Morgan. Sure. Well, you know, up until the 1950s or so, uh, steamships were the only way to cross the Atlantic. They linked the old world and the new. And in the 1870s, 1880s, you had this tremendous revolution going on in shipbuilding where you move away from wooden ships, you move away from use of sail, you have the steamships coming in, you have iron-hulled ships coming in, which allows ships to be bigger and stronger and faster. And then in the 1880s, you have steel coming in, which allows ships to really increase in size. I mean, by the early 1900s, ships are capable of being two and a half football fields long, uh, built out of steel with electricity and uh, able to sail at speeds up to 25, 26 miles an hour, which and cross the Atlantic in a week when the, the old sailing ships of the pre-Civil War era, the wooden ones, would take anywhere from a month to three months. And this allowed more and more people to be carried in these ships. And German and British uh, shipyards sort of led the charge in this technological revolution. And what funded it was, you know, the cargo was a big part of it. The port of Hamburg was the biggest port, I believe, I think they tied with New York as an export and port of departure for passengers. But the majority of people crossing the Atlantic were immigrants. And by the 1880s, the business model became 
how many people could we put in the bottoms of these bigger, faster steamships to make them more money? And uh, this was a massive revolution uh, in terms of safety and speed and interconnectivity. And the Hamburg America line, which would eventually grow to be the biggest steamship company in the world, was at the forefront of this. But the Brits were also big on this with the Cunard line and the White Star line, which became major immigrant carriers. They also pioneered luxuries in first class, but third class is where most of the money was made. Low, it was a very high margin business. Yeah, in fact, I think you said in the book that the steerage class, the uh, below third class, there was sometimes it was a third class, sometimes first, second, and third, sometimes first, second, and steerage. Right? But anyway, the steerage class, the lowest class, essentially subsidized the the first and second class. They occupied. Uh, like a fifth of the boat and the steerage, like four fifths of the boat, but the fees from the four fifths allowed for the people to sit on top and sunbathe on the on the decks. Pretty much, I mean, the uh, a steerage fare in the eighteen nineties to the early nineteen hundreds was probably it was still not a cheap journey. It was probably the equivalent, I think, around thirty marks, or which is the equivalent of maybe twelve hundred dollars. So if you're a poor family, that's that's a lot of money, and uh, up until the 1890s, steerage was a very bare bones place. It wasn't until maybe 1905 or so that steamship lines such as White Star and especially the Hamburg America line to basically attract more business began providing such things as separate cabins for families and kosher food in the kitchens. That was pioneered by the Hamburg America line under Albert Ballin to capture as many Jewish passengers as possible. And uh, But it's still not pleasant. I mean, you're either in the very front or the very back. You, If you're in the back, you get the engines vibrating. In the front, you get the bow rising up and down in rough seas. And as one maritime historian said about these great ocean lines, which are still iconic to this day. I mean, of course, we know the Titanic, but there were many great liners between 1890 and 1914 uh, that were luxurious and beautiful to look at. But as Frank Brainerd, the maritime historian, said, First class occupied two-thirds of the ship, but four-fifths of the people were crammed into one-fifth of the space as immigrants. So they leave Russia, they cross the German border, they're housed in these camps where they're sort of like deloused and checked against cholera and other diseases, and they make their way to the ports, and here you have this international maritime industry waiting for them. And that sort of is where... The narrative takes us to the three main protagonists, Balin, Schiff, and Morgan. So why don't we start with Balin? We've mentioned him a couple of times and the, the Hamburg uh, American line, but tell us about him. Who was he? How did he grow up? And how did he get to be in the position that he was? And I guess most importantly, what were his motives? So our Balin, he was born in, in 1857 in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, that before uh, it was integrated into the German Empire, it was then a free city. Our Ballin grew up in a lower middle class Jewish family. He, his father was a ticketing agent uh, who sold tickets in bulk to immigrants who were trying to board sailing ships to England that would then take them and then from there on to America. And our Ballin grew up, by the time his father died when he was 17, the family was very poor. Our Ballin knew anti Semitism for a very young age. His family was part of a relatively small Jewish community in Hamburg, but uh, I think 
the combination of poverty and anti-Semitism in the slums of Hamburg really scarred him. He would later say that I was never young. I never had a child, a carefree childhood. I always was helping my father trying to scrape by and make money. And in the 1870s, after his father's death, he took over this immigrant ticketing agent called Morrison Company. Uh, I don't know why they came up with that name, probably because it sounded English versus German. But he eventually uh, pioneered, he partnered with several shipping firms to create immigrant-only vessels uh, that would sail to England. And then from then on, the passengers would get onto bigger ships run by the Cunard and White Star Line and then go to America. But his business became so successful that the main shipping business in town, the Hamburg America Line, also known as Hapag, took notice of this young Jewish guy who was really cleaning up the immigrant business. And in the 1880s, they hired him as the manager of the passenger division of the Hamburg America Line, which at the time was not in great financial shape. And they only had a, a few steamships that were really anything close to modern. Albert Ballin grew their immigrant business. He uh, also developed really outstanding luxury in the ship's first-class sections. And in 1899, he was appointed general director of the Hamburg America Line, basically the equivalent of CEO, which made him one of the top executives in Germany at the time. And uh, an astonishing rise for someone of such humble origins. He was self-educated. He never completed high school. He spoke English fluently because he spent a lot of time in England. And he, he would comment that I never felt fully at home in Hamburg because he always felt anti-Semitism lurking in the background. He never converted to Christianity. He married a Gentile, but he refused to convert. He said, I cannot dishonor the memory of my dead father. They adopted a daughter named Ermgard, who they raised as a Lutheran. They were very, he was very close with his daughter. But uh, he always, no matter how high he rose in Germany, he, he uh, as, as one friend of his said, it was very hard when you looked at Albert Ballard. There was no way he could deny being a Jew, and he never denied it ever. But he always felt, even when he was visiting the Kaiser, who he developed a pretty interesting and fairly close relationship with, Albert Ballard always had this feeling that people in Berlin were snickering at him behind his back. The empress hated him. Uh, that this guy was always showing up at court, always talking to uh, the Kaiser about shipping and diplomacy. Albert Ballin really was a big Anglophile. He always felt more comfortable in England. He befriended a young rising politician named Winston Churchill. Uh, he befriended another German Jew named Sir Ernst Kassel, who was banker to Edward VII. Uh, but he was, Ballin was always afraid that of a war breaking out between Germany and England, because that would destroy his business. He said, I would go bankrupt in a matter of weeks without steerage. And if there was a war that broke out, that would end the immigration business. Uh, and interestingly, it was he, was it not, who sort of worked this deal out with the Kaiser, which is if you let me control the border so that I can ensure that the the, the Jews passing through won't stay and they won't pose a health risk while they're waiting, we can, we can make a deal. It was he who sort of came up with the, this idea that we'll get them out, we'll make sure they're healthy, and uh, we'll both sort of 
obtain our objectives. I'll make money and you'll not have to worry about um, not in your backyard um, new immigrants. Yes, it was him and the head of the North German Lloyd, uh, Heinrich Wiegand, who came up with this deal. And the Kaiser said, that's that's fine with me. And it's estimated that, I mean, you didn't just have Jews coming through these border control stations. You also had Poles, uh, non-Jewish Russians, Austrians, you name it. But it's estimated that about half of all passengers on the Hamburg-America line during its peak years were Jews. I mean, they were attracted by the kosher food. They were supposedly attracted by the, if you paid a little bit more, you got a better voyage. But Albert Ballin was um, criticized heavily by members of the German Jewish community who felt that he was exploiting his own people. He basically had to make a deal with the German Jewish Aid Society to allow more of their presence at these border control stations to basically ensure that people were getting kosher food, that they were getting the aid they required. And uh, yeah, he, he had to make a deal around 1904 with uh, the German Jewish Aid Society. And he eventually made peace with them. Uh, he was loathed by the German far right, by the Prussian militarists. Um, one member of the Reichstag, a far right member, said it is terrifying that the strangers from Palestine have gotten to the, so gotten to the closest reaches of the German throne. Uh, he was also disliked by the social Democrats in the far left who saw him as an, as an, as a capitalist exploiter. So he was really walking this very fine tightrope. And I don't think he could publicly declare, I am doing this for humanitarian reasons. I think in his heart of hearts, he was doing the, he knew he was doing the right thing, but he also knew that he was in a very tight position. So it's interesting because he's making a fortune um, on the steerage passengers uh, mostly, mostly Jewish passengers, but at the same time, the deal that he has struck with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm to let him and and Hophog the, the 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 shipping business that he was the general director of, you have this sort of but for but for that deal, Jews may not have gotten across the border from Russia, so they may have been more trapped in Russia without his facilitating their transport across that border. Is that is that a fair way of looking at, at him in, a, in, in the most benevolent eye, but for, but for his deal and but for his arrangement with the Kaiser to get people out, they may, not, they may have remained in Russia? I think that's a fair deal. I mean, there was no really efficient way for them to get out other ways, otherwise. And there was so much political resistance in Germany to these Jews coming through anyway. Uh, fear of a, you know, a quote-unquote foreign invasion. Uh, the German anti-Semitic press referred to these Russian Jews as a foreign Asiatic influence. And there was also an association, both in Germany and in America, of Jews with disease. I mean, it's something that immigrants are very often tarred with, whatever their ethnicity. Uh, there was a cholera epidemic in 1892 on board one of the Hamburg America Line ships, in which scores died. There were ships that were quarantined outside of New York Harbor while bodies were being thrown overboard. And the, the American press blamed this um, basically, oh, Jews and their filthy living habits and blah, blah. The real culprit of it, unfortunately, was the, uh, the ship took on drinking water from the polluted Elba River in Hamburg. 
and there was a cholera epidemic going along there. So it was really it was the culprit of the drinking water. But uh, this disease thing really provo- provoked this visceral fear and response. And it was in response to this cholera epidemic in the 1890s that Albert Balance said, look, my business will fall apart unless we come up with some sort of deal, some health inspection deal. So uh, without this deal, I, don't, I think a lot of Jews would not have been able to go out. I mean, the Russian government was kind of lukewarm on Jews leaving anyway because they saw them, the men especially as uh, draft material. Mm-hmm. So you have this influx of Jewish immigrants into America, and into that steps the second um, protagonist of your narrative, which is Jacob Schiff, the managing partner of uh, Kuhn Loeb and, and company. So tell us about him and the role that he played in facilitating this Im- immigration and, uh, and assimilation or, uh, of these immigrants into America. Sure. So Jacob Schiff was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1847. And his family had lived in Frankfurt since I believe the Middle Ages. They had escaped expulsion during uh, the Reformation. and the But they lived in a house right next to the Rothschilds. And so the Schiffs and the Rothschilds had done business together for a very long time. Jacob Schiff leaves Frankfurt as a teenager. His father's very much against him going, but he wants to go to America to make his fortune. So he is sent over with some money and a package of kosher meat that they hoped would last the crossing by sailing ship. So he arrives in the 1860s as a young man and very, very smart, very driven, learns English very quickly. He eventually joins the dry goods firm Kuhn Loeb and Company, which was originally from Cincinnati, formed by German Jews. And by the 1870s, Kuhn Loeb and Company had moved to New York. And they move out of the dry goods business and go into investment banking. Jacob Schiff has the great (laughs) foresight to marry Solomon Loeb's daughter, Teresa. Uh, Always smart to marry the partner's daughter. But more than that, uh, Jacob Schiff said to his father-in-law, Solomon, look here, you know, forget about this whole dry goods thing and this merchandising. Look what's really growing here. Railroads. We need to be an investment bank, an underwriter to railroads. Solomon Loeb said, what a stupid idea. And Jacob should so said, just watch me. By the 1890s, Kuhn Loeb and Company had become the investment banker to the Pennsylvania Railroad and to the Rockefellers. So Jacob Schiff by then had become the richest Jew in the United States, an immigrant success story. And he is a very firm believer in the principle of tzedakah, of giving back. And he saw what was going on in Russia, and he was horrified. And he said, America is the promised land. He was actually not, he did not like Zionism at the time. He felt that America, with its system of constitutional democracy, with the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, was the ideal home for the Jewish people. So he encouraged Jewish immigration. He set up a whole network of charities, of settlement houses, of hospitals such as the Montefiore Hospital. That was his probably his favorite charity uh, for impoverished Jews to use to learn to be Americans. A lot of German Jews followed his lead and contributed uh, lavishly to these uh, institutions. But there was a lot of resentment between the Russian and the German Jews in the United States. Uh, a lot of the German Jews who had come over in the 1840s, 1850s, 
By the 1890s, a lot of them were middle class or upper class and were considered themselves not just American citizens, but culturally German. They went to synagogue, but they hired German nannies. They spoke German at home. And they saw this influx of Yiddish-speaking Russians who were impoverished as kind of an embarrassment. They feared that they would fuel anti-Semitism in the United States. So they, they felt, well, we need to civilize these people and make them good bourgeois Americans. The Russian Jews, on one hand, appreciated these small business loans and these uh, educational uh, aids to help them learn English, learn trades, to help start their businesses. Uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society will give out micro loans of like $50 to help people start their leather business, as was the case with my wife's great-grandfather and probably my own great-grandfather, who probably started off with a push cart selling butter and eggs and by the 1920s was a wealthy man. There were many cases like this. But the Russian Jews also felt that the German Jews were condescending, authoritarian, uh, speak to them sternly. and But Jacob Schiff, for to his credit, he never showed up in a horse and carriage whenever arriving at the Henry Street Settlement House. He always arrived on foot. He uh, didn't have many rich man's hobbies. His real love was giving away money. His biggest hobby was Judaism. Uh, and very involved with Temple Emmanuel, uh, on one on his birthday, at one, on one instance, he gave away half a million dollars just writing checks. That was his biggest joy. So he was very characteristically or stereotypically German, very authoritarian. His children were terrified of him, especially if they were late for uh, Sabbath day services. But uh, he, without him, there wouldn't have been this big charitable network and the impetus among the German Jews to give so generously. And that network um, sort of goes hand in glove a bit with with Ballin, right? Because Ballin's got all these Jews, they got to buy tickets, and um, Schiff is helping through philanthropy uh, these Jews not only make it in America, but but get to America with uh, international um, giving. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so Jacob Schiff gave very generously to the German Jewish Aid Society and to the uh, Baron de Hirsch Fund and the Alliance Israelite Universelle in Paris, which subsidized steamship ticket travel for immigrants who couldn't afford it. And there was also a business component because Kuhn Loban Company was interlinked through business and by marriage to the Hamburg Investment Bank of M.M. Vorberg and Company. Uh, the same Vorbergs is in the famous firm Vorberg Pincus, which still exists today. And Max Vorberg, who was the head partner of M.M. Vorberg and Company was the leader of Hamburg's German uh, Jewish community and was best friends with Albert Ballin. The two of them had a private telephone line connecting their offices in Hamburg. And M.M. Uh, Vorberg and Company provided a lot of financial advice and uh, underwriting to the Hamburg America line. And throw in the fact that Max Vorberg's brother Felix was married to Jacob Schiff's daughter, uh, Frida. So there's a lot of intermarriage and interconnection between these German Jews on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, and but the benefit to the, the Russian Jews or other Polish or Moldovian or whatever Jews that were trying to get it is that you now had this network. You had Balin and his shipping uh, enterprise. You had Schiff and his financial 
philanthropic enterprise, and the, the, the two of them marry up, and uh, as I read the book, are really the heroes of getting so many Jews safely out of Russia at a time when, as you said, the pogroms were as ferocious as uh, any time in history. Yes, I think and Jacob Schiff, I think, was the most humanitarian of the three by, by far. I think Jacob Schiff, he had vast wealth. He had vast connections. He was friends with Theodore Roosevelt. He was uh, very, uh, he was friends with people like Charles William Elliott at Harvard. And he had the confidence. Uh, it proved to be by World War I, he overestimated his, uh, his hand. But he had basically the confidence to sort of say, okay, I have money to give away. I have a mission. I am the head of the American Jewish community. I set the tone for philanthropy and for giving and our duty to those less fortunate, something he really drilled into his two children. Uh, And uh, yeah, I think he really, he felt, he called the czar of Russia both Alexander III and his son Nicholas II, the great Satan of the Jewish people. Uh, He just hated Russia. He felt Russia was, he felt Germany was actually relatively okay. He did not have a problem with Kaiser Wilhelm II. He had a private audience with Kaiser Wilhelm II through Albert Ballin. He felt that Russia was the great scourge of the Jews. So we're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. We're back. So we have these two guys working in concert, Ballin and Schiff, but you have a third protagonist in this book, an unlikely one um, with, a, with a more tenuous connection to, to Jews and Judaism. Uh, in fact, an anti-Semite as was his uh, son, an heir apparent, J.P. Morgan. So tell us about J.P. Morgan and his interest in transatlantic shipping and how he fits in with his international mercantile marine imm enterprise trust i guess as a trust yeah i've often been asked how did the arch goyim uh jp morgan <laughs> get involved in jewish immigration uh he was I, he was the person who was the least humanitarian interest he saw the transatlantic business as a transportation problem and as a business and he saw what how profitable this business was. He also saw a mess of competing steamship lines from England, France, Holland, Italy, Germany, all competing with each other for the immigrant business, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, and he said, I want to own all of that. He had done something very similar with railroads. He had bought up lots of competing railroad lines and crunched them together into trusts. He had created trusts for sugar, for steel, he had made Andrew Carnegie the richest man in the world by making Carnegie Steel the centerpiece of U.S. steel. And in the early 1900s, he was approached by a Philadelphia shipping magnate named Clement Acton Griscom, who owned two lines, the American line and the Red Star line. The Red Star line was the only one that actually made money, and its bread and butter operation was uh, immigrants, uh, heavily Jewish immigrants, shipping them from Antwerp to Philadelphia and New York, which is one reason why there's a decent-sized Jewish population in Philadelphia is because of the Red Star Line. Clement Griscom says, Mr. Morgan, don't you want to buy up 
work with me and we'll buy up all the transatlantic lines and we'll have a monopoly. JP Morgan had worked with Griscom for many years and said, sure, let's go for it. I've never failed. And they attempt to buy everything. They buy up a majority of stakes in companies such as the uh, Leland line, the Holland America line. They try to buy the French line. That doesn't work. They try to buy the Cunard line. The British government blocks a sale. They do buy the White Star line for $32 million uh, cash. Uh, then they try to buy the German lines. The German lines were the most profitable. They had the biggest immigrant pipeline. Albert Ballin says, this is a huge problem. This is very scary. The American juggernaut will basically devour us. That is not acceptable. Kaiser Wilhelm II and his government basically intercedes and stops this sale, and they arrange for a profit-sharing agreement that allows the Hamburg America line and North German Lloyd to remain independent. And J.P. Morgan is rather frustrated by this. He's not used to being told no. Uh, especially by a Jew like Ballin. So he decides to make Albert Ballin an offer. He says, okay, I can't buy your company, but I'll try to buy you. I'll offer you a million dollars a year in 1902 to head my company, the International Mercantile Marine. What do you say? You can move to New York. Albert Ballin said, absolutely not. I am loyal to Germany. I'm loyal to my company, which I built from largely from scratch. No way. And Albert Ballin... I think knew that this company was going to be a failure and the International Mercantile Marine proved to be JP Morgan's only major business failure. And so how does he fit into the facilitation of, or does he fit into the facilitation of these great waves of Jewish immigrants fleeing pogroms and stuff? Or has he just become a, a major player in the transatlantic shipping market? which he then, I guess, ties to his railroad. So he does facilitate transportation um, for people, but he doesn't have any altruistic uh, inclinations here, does he? No, he doesn't. He, he had no uh, altruistic intentions at all. Uh, the, the Red Star Line probably carried the most Jewish immigrants, and that was an integral part of the International Mercantile Marine, the White Star Line also did as well when their ships, they departed Liverpool or Southampton and they would call at Cherbourg, France and pick up immigrants, some of whom were Jewish, uh, but a lot of whom were traveling from you know Spain and Germany and Scandinavia. Uh, but yeah, it was purely monetary. I don't think that uh, he had any uh, any humanitarian impulses. And and by the way, Schiff and Morgan were absolutely bitter enemies, uh, absolute rivals in the railroad underwriting business. The two of them just really more, more JP, Jacob Schiff kind of had to respect Morgan in terms of like how powerful he was. JP Morgan would occasionally drop anti-Semitic comments uh, because of his feeling threatened by Kuhn Loeb and company. Uh, he said, uh, he once said to one British aristocrat who worked at Barings Bank, saying, well, my firm and your firm are the only firm, major banking firms controlled entirely by white men. <laughs> he was making references to Kuhn Loeb and Company and Rothschilds, uh, very anti-Semitic. His son was flagrantly anti-Semitic. But the two, Schiff and Morgan, fought several railroad takeover battles. But Jacob, Jacob Schiff was hard to touch, too, because, you know, when you have the Rockefellers as your clients and the Pennsylvania Railroad and 
uh, E.H. Harriman of the Union Pacific, uh, that, that's a pretty nice portfolio to have. Mm. So he facilitates, incidentally, the transport of Jews by virtue of the, the trust that he's created that continues the steerage of people uh, uh, across uh, the United States. The thing that interests me also, which is something I didn't realize because uh, I've never seen the movie, um, was that it was Morgan, who was in now the shipping business, that builds the Titanic, one of what was three sister ships. Yeah? Yeah, so the Titanic was fully American-owned. She flew the British flag. But her construction was a response to Cunard's lines, Lusitania and Mauritania, which Cunard line was not could, couldn't be purchased by um, Morgan, and also by Albert Ballin's fleet. And uh, planning began in 1908-1907, and the first of the ships, the Olympic of this class, was was maiden voyages in 1911. Uh, the Titanic followed the next year in 1912, and these ships did not have the steerage capacities that the Hamburg America line ships had simply because they were, when they called in France, you just didn't have the direct pipeline to Eastern and Southern Europe. So a Hamburg America line ship would carry maybe two to 3,000, no, more like 2,500 in third class in steerage. The Titanic and her sister ships, the Olympic and the Britannic, could only carry about 1,000. So that kind of spoke to the business problem that the White Star Line was having. Uh, and uh, Albert Ballin, by the time these the Titanic was launched in 1912, or her maiden voyage, he saw that the International Mercantile Marine was a money-losing prop proposition, and he broke his profit-sharing agreement with Morgan, saying, this is baloney. Like, why am I paying money to a company that is no longer viable and he began building three giant ships of his own to outdo the white star lines and can carry a heck of a lot more immigrants so his ships which were supposed to come online in 1913 1914 and 1915 were the imperator the Vaterland, and the bismarck and these three ships built by ballon their size would not be surpassed for another 20 years but the titanic was fully American-owned, and uh, uh, something that Morgan helped cook up in his, uh, in his quest to try to save the company. Mm. Didn't, didn't work out so well, did it? It did not. <laughs> so I want to just move forward. There's a lot in this book for our listening audience that we are not going to be able uh, to cover in the interest of time, but I want to do two things. One is to talk about Henry Cabot Lodge and the Immigration Restriction League. So what is going on in America as all of these immigrants are are pouring in? So the Immigration Restriction League starts around the time of the big cholera epidemic in 1892-1893. Uh, and it was started by a group of Boston patricians and academics who lived in places like Beacon Hill and looked on the north side of Beacon Hill and saw who was moving there. Italians, Jews living in these tenements, they did not like what they saw. They said these people are not suited to America. They are poor. They don't speak the language. They won't be able to survive here. And you, they began reading 
some of the stuff that was coming out of France and Germany that today we would call scientific racism. Stuff by uh, people such as Gobineau. Uh, this, this, is, this is covered very well um, in the wonderful book uh, uh, by Daniel Okrent, The Guarded Gate. Uh, he really goes into depth in some of this really toxic literature that's coming out of Europe. And they begin to say, look, these people are genetically different from us. They are racially inferior. And God forbid they begin marrying native stock, you know, English and German Americans. Like this will degrade the population. So this starts off as an elite movement in the halls of academia, places like MIT and Yale uh, and Harvard, and also in high society. And Henry Cabot Lodge is longtime senator from Massachusetts. He is a member of the Immigration Restriction League. He becomes the league's mouthpiece on Capitol Hill. Initially, most people dismiss this as junk, as quackery. There is a lot of support on Capitol Hill, especially among big business, for immigrants because it means cheap labor. But by around 1910, 1912, the Immigration Restriction League, through skillful use of the media, of mainstream publications such as Harper's, the New York Times, and other publications, and also by use of such things as the Dillingham Commission and Congress, they began, quote-unquote, investigating the fitness of these people who are coming in and calling for greater restrictions on the arrival of immigrants, of and America had a relatively unrestricted immigration policy at the time. What matters if you had to pass through Ellis Island or immigration control stations such as the Washington Avenue one in Philadelphia. There's one in Boston as well, and most major cities had them. So everyone had to pass through them. It wasn't totally unchecked. But there were calls for, we need to find more and more criteria to restrict people. And World War I really was the breaking point where immigration was largely cut off by the war. And people began saying, wow, isn't this wonderful that there are no, none of these foreigners coming in? And by 1916, you had the publication of a book called The Passing of the Great Race by a member of the IRL named Madison Grant, who is a uh, quote-unquote gentleman scholar, uh, lawyer, who had no basis in science. I mean, he had no training in it. But he theorizes that there are three races in Europe among white Europeans, the Nordics, the Alpines, and the Mediterraneans. And he totally made this up. And he said that the races we need to worry about, about intermarrying with the whites of America, the Nordics, as, as he classified them, were the Alpines who we, and the Mediterraneans, Italians and Jews. And this book really combination with World War One helped lead to the passing, starting in 1917 and all the way up to 1924, of increasingly strict quota-based immigration uh, restrictions based on ethnic origins of people. So that was, it started off as a fringe movement, and it was a trickle-down thing. Uh, unlike populist anti-immigrant anti feelings today, it was something that started from the top and trickled down. Mm. It is something that then metastasizes um, later on uh, with even more exclusions in the Voyage of the Damned and other um, efforts to keep 
uh, 1930s Jews from coming to America. So you see the origins of um, these restrictive policies uh, that, that plague Jewish immigrants for a, a long time. But you said something earlier in the, in the interview, which was Ballin and others were very much afraid of war and the impact um, it would have on their business. And the title of the book is The Last Ships from Hamburg. So what was The Last Ships about? What, how did it come to pass that there, there, there was a last ships issue? Well, uh, there was like in the years leading, in the, especially in the last few years leading up to World War One, there was an increasing feeling that war was inevitable. There was revolution in Russia in 1905. There was the Russo-Japanese War, which humiliated Russia and caused more people to leave, people afraid of being drafted into the Tsar's army. And if a war broke out in Europe, this whole fragile system of border control stations and steamship travel would fall apart. And in the summer of 1914, uh, it did. Albert Ballin's worst fears came to pass when Russia and Germany went to war, and that basically closed the borders. You had hundreds of thousands of Jews who were trying to get out who were not allowed to. You did have some that were stranded in Hamburg in the immigration stations or in, in the immigrant village and were put to work uh, at, on German farms to feed the German army. It was pretty terrifying and sad fate for them. And the British quickly laid mines in the North Sea, which blockaded Germany and stopped all ship travel. You also had in the United States dozens of German ships stuck in U.S. ports, especially in Hoboken, New Jersey, which was the main terminal. So Hamburg America Line went from being the largest shipping line in the world with 175 ships, including many magnificent superliners, to a company that basically ceased to exist. Uh, people could no longer travel to the United States. And Albert Ballin would say, or he said, he wrote this to a, a friend saying, my life's work is ruined. I need my youth back to build back this company. The company essentially went bankrupt during the war. And Albert Ballin found himself out of favor at court. He was a pacifist. He hated the idea of war. He dismissed the Prussian leadership of the foreign office and the war effort as office boys. He said none of them could even be hired as a clerk at Hamburg America Live. But this devastated him. He was heartbroken by what he saw happen to Germany. And he, I think he knew what was going to happen. He knew Germany was going to lose. He wouldn't dare say it. He would riot privately. But uh, it was this basically ended the German suprem Germany's supremacy in the immigrant business. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting about it, of course, is there are always you know but fours, um, but but for this war, if you will, who knows how many more Jews would have been able to leave, immigrate from uh, Russia and 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 Germany should they want uh, before the onset of the Second World War. So in some sense, this bottleneck, this coming to uh, a conclusion of immigration, leaves this pool of vulnerable people uh, to face the consequences of uh, Germany and World War II. 
Yes. I mean, Albert Ballin dies in 1918, just before the armistice. Uh, there is debate of whether or not he took his own life, uh, but it was really, uh, it was a, he was a, died a very just sad man. And for someone who had risen so high in German society, and I think he also saw what was going to happen to the immigration business. 1924, 100 years ago, Congress passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which effectively barred Jews, Italians, Poles, pretty much with you know maybe a quote of a few thousand a year from entering the United States. And those laws remain in effect until 1965. Mm. So Ballin dies a broken man, although ultimately there'll be a Ballenstadt, a street and a, and, a, and a museum honoring him. What what became of, of Schiff? Well, Jacob Schiff dies in 1920, and he had a very painful divorce with Germany because he felt very culturally close to Germany. And he felt if America was to join the war on the side of England, France, and Russia, we would be basically allying ourselves with the great persecutors of the Jewish people. And he was very ambivalent. Took him to around 1916 to really come around to the fact that America, if it was going to enter the war, was going to enter the war on the side of the Allies. So, and he also realized by 1918 and 1917 or so that uh, Germany was actually an unreliable friend of the Jews. And he began floating the idea, he'd been very opposed to this before, of maybe Palestine would be, if not the home of a new Jewish nation, a center of Jewish culture. Because he realized that Russia, he had initial high hopes for Russia after the uh, initial revolution uh, with the provisional government under Kerensky. But then when the communist revolution happened in, in October of 1917, he's like, okay, this is a whole different kettle of fish. But he organized through the American Jewish Joint Attribution Committee, aid for hundreds of thousands of Jews who are suffering in war-torn Europe. Uh, there were When the Russian army invaded parts of Austria-Hungary, uh, there was mass pogroms and violence uh, that really horrified him. But when he died in 1920, he had given away an estimated half of his fortune to mostly Jewish charities. He died an estimated with worth an estimated $50 million, but he'd probably given away, I mean, that's a vast sum of money. We're talking the billions today. But when he died in 1920, his funeral was at Temple Emmanuel on Fifth Avenue. The synagogue was packed. He demanded that there be no eulogy for him. But outside were hundreds, or if not thousands of Jews who had come up from the Lower East Side to pay their respects when they wore their mourning clothes. And as the coffin was borne out, uh, they recited the mourner's Kaddish. Uh, so as much as there was a conflicted relationship between the German Jews and the Russian Jews, the Russian Jews did acknowledge that if not for him, they would not be where they were. We're just at the end, um, Steve, and I'd like to ask you the question that this book always invites, which is, what are the lessons in for 2024 America, what lessons should we take away from, from this great book of yours? I think we have to realize that people who come to this country, and this country, I hope, remains a beacon of hope and freedom for years to come, because that's what it represents to a lot of people who want to better 
not just their lives, a lot of first-generation immigrants then and now suffer tremendously. But if this country becomes a beacon of hope for people who want to make a better lives for their themselves, but especially their children and their grandchildren, who have faith in the American experiment, we have to leave room for that because that's how this country renews itself. The people that came to this country, not just from who are from you know not just Russian Jews, but uh, other places, have greatly enriched by and large this country. Without this country, we would, without this mass immigration, we would not we have not had people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Marx Brothers, who basically invented, gave us Jewish humor, and which has since become American humor. We would not have had George Gershwin, uh, who invented, gave us the American modern musical. We would not have had uh, Irving Berlin, who wrote the song God Bless America, and he came over as a five-year-old uh, and saw the Statue of Liberty, uh, never forgot it on, that, on the deck of that ship. And God Bless America has arguably become our second national anthem. I frankly think it's a better song than our current one. But we have to remind ourselves that America has to renew itself. Whenever we close ourselves off entirely, then we atrophy and all sorts of other bad things happen. And I think that if we don't remain, retain faith in our constitutional system of government, and it is by no means perfect, uh, is we have cursed by the original sin of slavery and the original sin of the uh, the displacement of death of Native Americans. I will say that compared to what has happened, though, in Russia, if, Ru- if, if Russia has had this tradition of authoritarianism and where the value of human life is so little, uh, if we succumb to the forces of darkness and authoritarianism, then the war will be a much poorer and sadder place. The book is The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I. Steve Ujifusa, I'm very grateful for you to take the time to speak to us on That Said. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. M-S-W.